You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre. Hello, Andy. Hi, how you doing, fellas? Very good. We uh, are once again joined by uh, a, a guest. You and I, we went through what was um, the usual busy fall tasting, se- tasting season. Just- one of the, So we went to the Rogers Tasting. Rogers and, and Company is, is one of the um, agencies I'm a big fan of. Uh, my wife is a massive fan of uh, Warm Climate um, Cabernet. So obviously... Um, Rogers is a place where we put a, a bit of money. They hold Paul Hobbs. Everyone knows I'm a Paul Hobbs fanboy. Uh, they hold Ridge in their portfolio. But what I wasn't expecting when we went to the Rogers and Company tasting was to find... Cool Climate Pinot. Cool Climate Pinot from, from Ca- California. From California. And, and that's why we're joined by Andy Pay. Did I say the last Hello. name right? It's It, it throws you off because there's an extra letter. There's extra letters in there. There's one. There are extra letters in there, and if you're uh, if you're south, uh, if you're from the southern parts of the United States, they they say P, and I consider myself fortunate that they say Pay up north. Okay, Ooh, good because I I did a video of one of your wines and I said Pay, so I'm thankful thankful I did that. Yeah, no nobody needs to drink a glass of pee. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hand uh, me that bottle of pee over here. So, I, I mean, it's one of the things where you were one of the last wines that we tasted in the day. Like, we, we tasted quite a few wines there. And um, I, I can say this without anybody else in, in the room, but your wines were definitely uh, some of the standouts that were in there. So, yeah. congratulations on that. Um, did you sell a lot of wine at the show? Uh, I don't really know. You know, I sell the wine to Rogers, and then that's their problem. But, uh, no, I, think, <laughs> I think we did sell a lot of wine. They've been great partners of ours the last Oh, maybe 15 years. Harris, uh, uh, who, who his family uh, runs uh, Rogers, he uh, he found us very early on, and we started sending wine to to Ontario, and they've been our uh, our uh, distributor and importer in the region ever since then, and they've just done a great job. Um, so I was very happy to come because it was the first time that I've been uh, to Toronto since uh, I've had wine. As a kid, I used to go up to uh, north of Toronto, the Algonquin, and work for the Ministry of Natural Resources, digging new uh, new latrines and cleaning up campsites and canoeing around and all that kind of stuff. But the first, hang on the first part doesn't wine, sound very exciting. Yeah, so, so I guess there's one thing. I, I, I know you mentioned this at the at the show, but like I said, it was a noisy room. We'd had a bit of wine, so I didn't retain information as, as, as good as I should. Are, are you Canadian? I'm not. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So right. we're, we're just over the border, eh? Um, <laughs> throwing the A in there to, 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 to just blend in with the locals. That you couldn't, well, you know, that you couldn't uh, dig latrines in Ohio is a little surprising to me, but all right. Well, we have prisons in Ohio that we dig latrines for, but uh, no, the, the latrines were up in the Algonquin, up north uh, in your beautiful lakes uh, where campsites, you know, I'd go to campsite to campsite around the lake and clean them up. And that was a, that was a spring job to keep me from getting kicked out of high school after I got into college. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, with a bunch of buddies. Um, so let, let's get right into like one of the reasons why your wines were so stunning, apart from the fact that they just tasted great. It's um, I've been fortunate enough to visit California a few times. I've been to Napa, Sonoma. Haven't been anywhere else. But what happens inevitably when you go to the Napa Valley is you get someone in the tasting room and you taste through the Zinfandel, you taste through the Cabs, you taste through the Chardonnay, and you know those are the wines that you're really there to expect. Then they inevitably bring you a bottle of Pinot Noir and they're just like, oh, taste this. 
and I and and sorry to put all of California together. I'm hoping you're going to help us do some geography as well. But I'm talking about like as a as a tourist, as a young wine professional, it's just like oh, taste this. It tastes just like Burgundy. Where growing up in Ontario and focusing on Ontario, I was always of the impression that Burgundy and Burgundian style wines are a little bit more elegant, cooler, less extracted, and have salt tannin, and you get these Californian Pinot Noirs that are just jammy, you know, disjointed, low acid, and it's just like. Is, is is there a market perception of Pinot Noir, and how do you go about actually making cool climate Pinot Noir? Why does your Pinot not taste like the California Pinot I've had experiences with? Well, so Andre, you, that's about eight questions in that comment, um, in that question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tick that's them off one at a time. <laughs> that's so, typical, first of Andre. All, um, I think a lot of people when they say uh, this tastes like Burgundy, uh, they're trying to do that associated. Uh, Associate, you know, quality through association. Um, burgundy tastes like burgundy. And even burgundy doesn't taste like, quote unquote, burgundy anymore. Things have changed there as well. Uh, generationally, weather-wise, you know, winemaking processes, etc. Um, I think oftentimes they're trying to say, hey, isn't my Pinot Noir great? Let me say it's great like the known great Pinot Noir of the world. Um, California is not burgundy. We're never going to make Burgundy. We're going to make whatever we make. And California is not a ubiquitous thing either. So uh, if you're in Napa and you're drinking somebody's Pinot Noir, they're probably getting it from Carneros. At least historically, that's where they started getting their Pinot Noir from was the Carneros region, which is southern Napa, southern Sonoma County, quite warm. Uh, so those make they tend to make, not always, but they usually make bigger, juicier, jammerier wines because it's warm, uh, low acid and all that. Um but there are a lot of different Pinot Noir regions in California and Oregon and, and the West Coast of the Cal- United States, for that matter. Where we are specifically is what they call the West Sonoma Coast. So Sonoma County, which is west of Napa, and then west of Sonoma County is the Pacific Ocean. So we're up against the ocean. And we're just a little sliver, about five miles to ten miles wide, that runs down along the Pacific Ocean of Sonoma County. That's what the West Sonoma Coast AVA is. And it's a new AVA. Is is this um, a, is is this the same AVA that um, Carlos Mondavi and Rain are working in? They're also, uh, I think, most of their wines do come from the West Sonoma Coast as well. Um, Occidental, Freestone, and free, and I believe Fort Ross Seaview. They have a vineyard up there. Um, some they own, some they purchase. Uh, we are north of them, also in the West Sonoma Coast AVA. But what's unique about it is in Northern California. Uh, the Pacific Ocean stays about, you guys will have to do the math for me, 52 degrees, 53 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. Okay. Yeah, all right. So, so, so like 5 20? to 10 degrees? No. You said 52 minus 30 is 22, 11 That's degrees. 10 degrees, 10, 11 degrees. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. uh, so my, my question would, would then be, um, so my experience with, uh, with visiting uh, California has been uh, Monterey. Um, and they tried to explain to me what cool climate was, and I said, I'm from Ontario. I don't need you to tell me what cool climate is. But uh, where are you in relation to, say, Monterey then? Okay, so Monterey is a valley that opens up out to the ocean, but it's also a valley that's quite deep and inland. So the Pacific Ocean, there are a couple things going on. I'll try to make this quick. So we're maritime which means we're up against a big body of water. In our case, it's an ocean. It's Pacific Ocean, doesn't heat up in the summer, stays 
uh, chilly all year round. Your weather comes onshore where we are because it gets hot in the interior, creates a vacuum. Uh, hot air rises, creates a vacuum, pulls in a marine layer. So if you're within about five to ten miles, you're in a marine layer. If you're low enough elevation, you're in that fog, in that wind. Where my, So my temperatures don't really exceed the high 60s, maybe low 70s Fahrenheit on the hottest time of the day in July. Wow. Wow. Well, that's very different than it is in any really, quote, unquote, cold climate, climate region growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. In Burgundy, for example, it gets a hot, lot hotter than that in July on many days. Some days it doesn't. Some days it rains. We don't get any rain. We're in a desert climate. Everybody yeah, has their was... own specific features of their microclimate. In Monterey, uh, they do get a lot of fog in the morning that comes into that that valley, but then it burns off and it gets real hot because it's in a valley. Uh, we're up on the coast, so the wind blows every day at noon. Set your watch to it. It's like turning on the fan in your refrigerator blowing cool air above that cold body of water on shore. That's why our temperatures stay so cool in the afternoon. That's why the warmest time in the day for us is the late morning, not the afternoon. Most wine grape growing regions in the world that are continental, in other words, not up against a cold body of water, their hottest time of the day is the afternoon. But ours isn't because of the wind. So in Ontario, you're up against Lake Ontario. Um, That is your moderating influence to your wine growing region. I would guess. I don't know your wine growing. No, it's true. Oh, right. I mean, the stuff that you're talking about is like, so it gets crazy hot in the summer. Like, it's not unusual to get in the 80s and sometimes low 90s. 90s here in the summer. And then when the fall rolls in, we have to worry about rain. And uh, all summer, we have to worry about humidity. Um, yeah, so <laughs> you guys are what I would call continental. We are continental. Um, yeah. you're, 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 and so is, so is Burgundy, so is the Rhone Valley. Um, you guys have shorter what they call shoulder seasons, spring yep. and fall. Um, and when the weather turns, it turns. Like it, come the third, fourth week of September, it starts getting really cold at night. The vines get the message, whether the fruit's ripe or not. And the leaves start to not just turn color, but turn brown and drop. We usually get Black a little we get a little bit longer here. We, we, we usually have until the end of October, for bef- like October before things go like really panicked. I we, mean, we, we've had one heck of a season this year, though. I, I, harvested, uh, I harvested Chardonnay in November, which is unheard of. Every year we've made Chardonnay, we've harvested like September 25th, September 26th. The latest harvest up till this year was we still, October 1st. We still have Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon hanging in, in vineyards wow. now. Yeah. Yeah. So but, that's but, cool. Yeah, but, but, well, but, but we also had a very late year as well. But okay. I mean, Basically, California gets or gets October, uh, and not just like we get it, but it's nice weather. Uh, in fact, it's nicer weather because it's not so hot in the interior, so it's not pulling in that marine layer as much. So we're not sitting in fog as much. You ever want to come to to San Francisco? The nicest months September and October. You're not going to be sitting in fog. So you need um, you need. You need to tell us about your about your winery. I don't think you still oh, tell yeah, us yeah. about. And then, and then I want to talk about your growing season. But let's talk about the winery. Let's first. Talk about the winery. How did you get it? How did you get your start? Why did you end up where you are? And well, um, I mean, it's obvious, fellas. If you grow up in Cleveland, Ohio, you're going to have a winery, right? Would, um, <laughs> yes, because I, I know people who live in Ohio, and that's all they think about. So uh, we grew up by uh, my mom ran farmers markets, you know, partly. Uh, but we grew up just eating and drinking really well. And my brother uh, eventually went to Davis and got a, an analogy degree. And I uh, ended up a few years later joining him there. And I was a retail wine buyer, mostly European buyer, and really loved wines that captured uh, the expression of sight. 
that's what was interesting to me was, wow, okay, I can taste that this wine tastes this way based on, you know, as I learn more, oh, because of the soils or because of where it's grown, the temperatures. And I was interested in, in uh, how that influenced the style of the wines. I wasn't so into big fruity jammy in your face. I mean, I started there. I drank Zinfandel in the early 90s uh, because I could afford Zinfandel for the most part. Um, but I wasn't just after the impact kind of went away. I was like, well, why does this Nebbiolo taste like this? And that one tastes like that. And I found out how to do a soil and things of that nature. So that's what got us really interested. And, and at the time, California was not making wines that were uh, featuring uh, site expression. They were making big fruit forward wines. It was about the winemaker. People want to talk about winemaking processes. If you read the wine spectator, it was always pictures of a winemaker being a, a hero of some sort talking about malactive fermentation. <laughs> so I said to my brother, well, you know, if we're going to do our own thing, uh, we're in our mid twenties. Uh, you know, mom and dad didn't give me a domain or chateau. So what are we, what are we going to do? And uh, he said, we need to get away from the Cal- the beautiful California sun. So his theory was let's get up against the ocean. We went down to what's now the Santa Rita Hills, Southern part of, uh, you know, Santa Barbara County along the ocean uh, and we realized the waters, they stay kind of warm in the summer. It's still cool, but not as cold, so they don't moderate as much. We went up into Oregon, further inland. Yes, they have the Van Duzer Corridor, which gives you some of the cool air influence, but it's quite inland, so it heats up during the day. If you've been to Oregon in the summer, you get some hot days. Um, so he really wanted too. to get... Sorry again? You also have to deal with the humidity, and often it's a race to get the grapes off before the rain comes. Right, which we have a little bit of that as well. We get okay. rain in October, but it's like little spritzes and you hope it's just little and not huge. And we've had some huge years. Um, but he said, basically, let's get up against the ocean, uh, closer to the ocean than perhaps the Willamette um, and get in that fog layer up north where we will be uh, moderated by the Pacific Ocean. So that's that was the major thing was Pacific Ocean. So we won't just end up with big fruit. We will have fruit. Yes, but We'll also have floral and tea and earth and spice and and alcohols will be in check and all that kind of stuff. So we went looking around in our pickup trucks on our days off. He was down in Santa Cruz making wine. And uh, we found an old sheep ranch in Apple Orchard in 96, purchased it, started planting in 98. 01 was our first vintage. And we were joined right before our first vintage by Vanessa Wong, who was this really impressive winemaker, uh, Vanessa had worked for some of the greatest state wineries around the world, including Lafitte Rothschild and Sean Groh and Peter Michael as the winemaker. And she came out and tasted some very young vine Chardonnay uh, on vine in September. And she was like, whoa, this has got a very different expression than I'm used to from warmer parts of California. And uh, she was very interested in trying to make that uh, and became our winemaker. And then very fortunately uh, started dating my brother and they got married, and which is fortunate because Peter Michael pays well, and I can't possibly match his salaries. <laughs> so uh, that's that's when it all fell into place. My brother's the grower. She's the winemaker. I, I do all the business and sales, and we have a 53-acre vineyard up on a ridgetop. We were the first people in the northern part of the West Sonoma Coast. Everybody thought it was too cold and wet and remote, which it has been at times. Uh, where we are, we get a lot of rain, but it's almost all a little bit in October and then a little bit in November then December through April and a little bit in May. Now we're getting a little in June, which is not great because of flowering. Um, but we don't get rain in the summer. And we're right on the San Andreas Fault. That's a major fault line. That's where the Pacific pushed the Farallon Plate underneath the North American Plate, scraped up these marine soils that creates the ridges. 
also some volcanic activities. And we're on a, a former inland sea. So we have these old marine soils. We have scallop fossils in our soils. That's why one of my Pinot Noirs is named Scallop Shelf. Um, but yeah, that's it. So it's mostly Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Syrah, a little bit of Viognier, and it's 53 certified organic vineyard. And Are you ever, are you ever worried about the, the fault, you know, of the uh, earthquakes and things like that? Or No, that that's how I get... Uh, uh, oceanfront property is uh, it's 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 a transversal fault right now. So I don't know, hundred thousand years from now, I can walk out my front door and it'll be ocean. But uh, <laughs> no, to to be to be out. I mean, no, uh, we do get uh, occasional little earthquakes. We're we're due. Some people say overdue for a big one. Uh, I wasn't here during the big one in the late eighties. Um, I moved here in the in the early nineties. It's, you know, it really will not affect the vineyard, uh, the winery. We could have some collapsed barrels and things of that nature. My personal cellar could be a bit of an issue, but, you know, I've done things to try to mitigate that. But uh, like we've got a lot it? of other. Like drinking it? Well, I mean, I drink as, much, as fast as I can. Yeah. <laughs> I have a very bad buying habit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's but, really. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I tilt my bottles, my racks back. I've got, you know, rubber cushions on the floor. I used to net them. I don't net them anymore because it's just a pain in the rear. Just like grapes. That's a really great story. So you were just like really uh, ahead of your time. Is um, the West Sonoma Coast going to be I, – I guess I think everyone hopes that they're the next big thing. But like is – I'm just – I'm noticing, especially in Ontario here where I think our, our tastes are a little bit more cool climate. Like I said, when you said where you were geographic-wise, I realized I, I think I've had wines from there. Like the wines that Jenna Foster brings in at Heirloom Imports. Like – um, without, with without a doubt, like just some of the most stunning wines I've ever tasted worldwide, not just from California. When I opened up um, the Rain Chardonnay, my French business partner said straight up he was ashamed to be French that night because he thought it was better than most of the Burgundy we've been opening in the house. Not to do the well, comparison, we're trying not to do the comparison, but I mean, I have to do the comparison. That's why my French friend was uh, ashamed of being French. Is you guys are doing it a hell of a job there. Well, I think we're we're making West Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, Saran, whatever else we make. Um, however, I do feel like the complexity that you can get in those wines, um, at especially the prices, and our wines are not inexpensive, but if you're comparing them to that other part of the world over <laughs> in France, uh, you're getting a lot more complexity at our price points. Uh, over there, you're drinking Village. Uh, if- um Sorry, if I could go nerdy, like, I agree with what you're saying, but just one thing where we, we, you're such a great storyteller, Andy, that like it's just easy to go down rabbit holes. One thing you talked about was the cooler growing season that you have, like you said, 60, 70 degree days. And like, obviously like Pinot does like, and can soak up a little bit more heat if, if, um, if needed, how long does your growing season go? Like when is bud break and when is harvest? Cause I'm kind of doing the math in my head. I know the we're we're enjoying one of your wines. We're going to talk about this in a in a second, but this isn't crazy high in alcohol. You've got really nice extraction. The fruit is is really like nice and ripe and developed on it. So, but not but not jammy. Like I no, mean, so I'm just curious. Like, like there's, there's, there's some really nice spice on this one. We we might as well talk about it while we, we we've got that. Second and then you can here. think about how you're going to describe what the growing season looks like. So yeah. so, so we're just we just have the the straight on West, West Sonoma Coast. Coast Pinot. I I really like the the spice and acidity on this wine. I think it's really really, um, uh, it's really forefront. 
and I have a feeling that once we get that, because because we've got it sitting in the windowsill at seven sorry, degrees, Andy, I right served now. it a bit warm. Um, once it gets to that, maybe you know, a little bit lower in temperature, the I think, fruit will start I to think pop. The, the fruit was going to, uh, yeah, and it's and the, and you can just feel it in the background. It's a little bit of dark fruit, a little bit of red fruit. There's just enough in here that's uh, that's that's kind of ex- kind of exciting for California Pinot, where I do not uh, get very excited about California Pinot. Well, and it's just got the hints of like violet, but it's not as intense as like what you get in Willamette, like when you get some of the triple seven. 787 or 878 I can't remember the exact numbers but like some of those those really specific the airplane Dijon clones that go super floral you know you'll get Willamette Pinot that like Dundee Hills Pinot that just tastes like do you know your do you know your clones that you've got kicking around oh yeah I've got 15 different clones of Pinot Noir and we have some of Dijon and some of what they call uh heritage selections but but um to to get to your your uh original yeah let's hear how the growing season is question so something your listeners might find useful is um, the reason why you want to be in a cold climate, if you want to make the style of wines that I appreciate and it sounds like you appreciate, um, are that sugar uh, accumulates based on heat. Acid respires based on heat. So if you're in a warm place, that's going to happen over a shorter period of time. However, phenolic development, compounds that are that are associated with color, flavor, tannins, things like that, that's based on hang time. And not just how long is it on the vine, but how long is it from when the grape starts accumulating those in the skins, which is verasion, which is when you start getting color and sugar and all that stuff that starts getting into the skins, and pick. So that interval, you if, if that's a longer interval, you'll get more development of those compounds in the skin, which will potentially make a more interesting wine. So if you're in a warm place, your sugars are going really quickly, your acids are spiraling really quickly, you're going to have a shorter window of hang time that matters for flavor. So people tend to let it go a little bit and you end up making a kind of monochromatic fruit driven wine with low acid and, you know, doesn't have a lot of floral lift or other things because it's overpowered by the, by the fruit. So if you're interested in wines that have earth and tea and fruit and floral notes, as well as fruit and have good energy and brightness and freshness from acidity and moderate alcohol, you want to be in a cooler place. So you stretch out, that hang time. And so that's why you want to be in a cool place like the West Sonoma coast, especially a cool place where you have enough of the fall that you can get it there. So this year, for example, which we all know is a late year for everybody. I mean, you're doing picking Cab Franc still. Um, We were picking in the third, fourth week of October, Pinot Noir, uh, which usually Mm -hmm. were done by the first week of October, maybe October 10th or 12th. Having said all that, We've had some drought, series of drought years and things like that, episodes. So it, your initial question, when's bud break? Well, that's a good question. Like, <laughs> it used to be March 16th. I could almost tell you it was March 16th. Wow. And our first, our first pick would be September 23rd. That's not the case anymore. I've had years where it started two weeks earlier, and we picked four weeks earlier than quote-unquote normal. And then this last year, bud break was a month later than normal, and we picked three, four weeks later than normal. So it's really about how many days was it on the vine. The thing is, it's not just length of time on the vine. It's what was going on with weather during that period. So this year, it started a little bit later. And so when we were going through flowering, we're solidly into June. And then we had this weird rain in June. We don't get rain in the summer. That's like desert climate in California. We don't get rain. But we got it. 
we got it perfectly poorly timed with our flowering. So we had shatter, which is not a you know unknown thing to happen in May when we have flowering, but it is in June. Sorry, what, um, what, so, what is what is shatter? I don't think that's a term that, I've never that, heard that of we, we use what up is, here. We might have a different weird Canadian thing for it. Uh, you might call it milerondage. Nope. Uh, so shatter is when okay. So you have uh, your your you put out uh, uh, the flowers. Yeah. Uh, the, the clusters put out little flowers and it opens up, and that's they're self pollinating. So they're not looking for you know a male or a female. You know, to, they do it all themselves. But if it's cold, wet, windy, those things impede the mm. those those flowers turning into fruit and and uh, berries, and some of them set. And you get a full berry. Some of them don't. And you get shot berries or you don't get any berries. And uh, so you get something that people refer to as chicks and hens. Oh, hens yeah, chicks and hens. Full berries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicks are the little bitty berries. Yep. And usually the little bitter berries, by the time you get around to picking, have turned into raisins and fallen off. Or they will if you are sorting and, you know, using a shaking table or whatever to get rid of the little raisins. Um, so Miller on Dodge... The marketing staff will tell you, Miller-Andage, ça c'est bon. You're going to get more intensity because there's more skin-to-juice ratio of the smaller berry, and that's just fantastic for depth, which is mostly bullshit because they turned little raisins. But not always. Sometimes they do. Um, But uh, we had a little bit of shadow this year. Having said that, we had such a great growing season. It was very cool that we didn't get those raisins. Um, so the little bitty berries actually our our yields are pretty good this year, if not very good. Uh, and we did have we do have an amazing flavor intensity, but not fatness. And this is getting to those adages that people say all the time about great Pinot Noir, which is you want power but finesse. You know, you yeah. want the 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 steel hand and a velvet glove, and all those things are what we seek out of Pinot Noir. We want there to be density and depth, but we don't want fat and juicy. We want good acid. We don't want like a big flousy thing. You know, it's 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 cool to to just like do the comparison. I would obviously. I think this is a conversation where hopefully next time you're in town, maybe we can do it over a, a couple bottles of of local wine and some of your wine side by side. It's just fascinating to see how different like this grape can do in different places. So in Ontario, our bud break tends to be April May. Depending on what the year what Whoa. the year is, and um, we we get those hot days in the summer, so things progress fairly quickly, and then we generally harvest like late September, mid October, and we do get really great flavor development here. But also, it's often it's Mother Nature who decides when we harvest, not us, because uh, that humidity, that disease pressure comes in. Like we harvested October fourteenth this year, and it was it rained a lot this fall, so we it was either take the fruit or lose half the crop and then lose half the crop and then lose half the crop. But I I, I think you would, you would probably be pleased to see what Ontario does with Pinot, given what you're looking for. All right. All right. All right. Enough about Ontario, Andre. So let me, it's cool to do the comparison. No, no, it's not at the moment. I want to talk about Andy's winery. I don't want to talk about, about, I'm going to go get the bottle of pour Go get some wine. That's actually chilled. Andy, let me ask you a couple of questions here. I was uh, reading up on the winery, and uh, for the first few years, you were just making one version of uh, of Pinot Noir. I read up on the Pinot Noirs, obviously, not the Chardonnays or the Syrahs. Why not? But um, 
you were because I don't want I don't want to talk about Chardonnay. But if he wants to talk Chardonnay, you can talk Chardonnay as well. But um, I was reading the Pinot Noir. You did one version until two thousand and five, and it had something to do with the barrels and and what you were tasting within the barrels. And then you decided uh, we're really going to go site specific. Talk to us about uh, a little about that site specific and, and and why you ended up from one to six different cuvées. Okay, so that vineyard that we have is a 53-acre vineyard, and 35 acres of that is uh, Pinot Noir. And it's and initially it was 15 clones of Pinot Noir. And it's so of the 53 acres, 35 acres spread out all over the place. It's a hilltop, so there's no flat land, and uh, you have some southeast, some south, some southwest, some west facing, um, and you're on a hilltop. So you're picking those 35 acres of Pinot Noir into 32 to 36 individual small little blocks because based on your aspect, based on your elevation, you're going to have different access to the sun and the water and other things which affect ripeness. We have our own crew full-time year-round. We don't use crews that come in. So Vanessa will just pick a couple rows that are ripe, and then we ferment them separately. So we end up making 32 to 36 individual Pinot Noirs. So back in the first few years, we were selling about half of our fruit or a little bit more than that. So we didn't want to come out with a lot of wine out of the gates. No one knew who we were. And also as young vine, as the vines get older, the wines can be better. Um, but by 05, we're now seven-year-old vintage, uh, uh, sorry, seven-year-old vines. Uh, we are making the one wine and uh, we're kind of going in two different directions because we, we taste and choose the wine without knowing production or what's in there. Vanessa, as the winemaker does, she makes the different potential pay estate Pinots, and we'll have maybe 10 different ones. And the differences will be a little bit more of this clone, a little bit less of that clone, maybe this barrel, maybe new barrel, maybe not, whatever. And then we decide what we like. We do it every two to four weeks. She tinkers with it, and then eventually she says, okay, this is the pay Pinot. We're doing that in 05, and we were going in two directions. One, a little bit more masculine, little darker fruit, more in the plum zone, earthier. The other one, floral, brighter, nervier, more kind of raspberries and pomegranates and just, you know, and there was a degree of elegance that wasn't as much in the other one. So we weren't agreeing. And Vanessa, after a few iterations, was like, you know, these don't actually share a lot of the same barrels. We can make two different wines. That became pomerium. That's more muscular. Scallop shelf, that's the nervier, more floral one. And then we had planted more acreage in 2001. So in 2009, when we felt like those vines were old enough and they were making really compelling wine, we were like, okay, well, what do we do with these different clones that we did not have initially? We didn't want to put them in pomerium and scallop shelf because it would have changed the profile. Because especially with young vine uh, clones, they're very fruit-oriented. They're very expressive with fruit, not as much with sight. And so we would have really changed one of those wines. So instead, we just said, well, we'll make a third wine. That became Ama. Um, so that's how we end up with three estate Pinots. So now we make those every year, and they're built around one or two clones, but they have two to six different clones in there that kind of fill out what they're missing. So Pomerium, I said, was the muscular kind of darker fruited one. It gets a little whole cluster to give it floral lift, but you don't want to do too much of that because the whole cluster also gives tannins. You don't want to take that out of whack. So it gets a few of the clones that are kind of mid-palate fillers that'll make a wine that's got top, medium, and base notes and still be in harmony, but it is but a little bit more of a muscular, masculine style. Scallop Shelf, it's based around the Pomard selection, about 40% of, and then it's got 60% of three or four other clones that help fill that out. So it's kind of like a painter having different colors you can layer to create 
texture and complexity. I, I love listening to um, winemakers and then listening to the people in the wine business talk about putting together Pinot and the challenges of dealing with Pinot. And most people in this audience, I know we're sick of going back to Ontario, but people who work in the wine business, if you're not in the wine business, um, I mean, what you're talking about is exactly like the complexity of dealing with this grape. It's why it's the heartbreak grape is having to manage and then dealing with vintage conditions year in and year out to figure out what's missing because a clone one year might be missing something the next year if it was a few degrees warmer, a few degrees cooler, and it's temperamental AF. That's so right, Andre. I mean, you know, it's it's not like, okay, those four blocks always go into Pomerium um, because maybe one of those blocks just didn't do as well this year for whatever reason, a nutrient issue or weather timing thing, whatever. So having all these different clones allows us to say, okay, well, it's missing this. What do we have that will help it reach its best expression? So we make those three estate Pinots blind of production. Me, the finance person, doesn't know how many cases it's going to make. So otherwise, hey, it's all estate level. I make more money. Um, and we choose it. And then the barrels that don't go in there, we then make the wine that you're drinking, the Pay West Sonoma Coast Pinot. No purchased fruit, all estate fruit. It's the barrels that didn't go into the, the three named ones. We do that blind of production. Same ideas as far as what's the best expression that we can make. What doesn't make that, I have a second label named CEP, C-E-P. So, and then we, that is, you know, half the price of my estate wine. So we have different price points and they're not any out. There's nothing, we, we don't buy anything for it. It's just the process of making the wines. That's how you, you go so, through so it. It's, so it's a lot of the declassification as, as you go. Is that, is that basically what we're looking at? Yeah, exactly. And it's a true second label in the case of CEP in the sense that we don't, we're not buying tons of, you know, negotiate stuff and, and blending it in there. If I can be a cheeky bastard, um, sounds an awful lot like uh, another old world wine region, the way they make their wine, whether it becomes village wine or individual blocks and tiers up that we have referenced a few times. Michael, anyways. I'd, be, I'd be interested in trying the SEP suddenly. I'd like to see where the, <laughs> like the whole declassification. Well, I've noticed goes. there's a hole in the bottom of your glass. Yeah, no, this is really good. And now <laughs> that it's, uh, it's at temperature, it's really, uh, it's really good. So now I can't believe I'm the one who's going to ask this question. So um, obviously you specialize in in Pinot. You've got six different cuvées. How many different Chardonnays do you make? Oh yeah, this is a neat question. And uh, you know, it sounds like you're you're officially the person who doesn't like Chardonnay or California Chardonnay. And I'm right there with you. I hate what California Chardonnay is known to be like. I don't like like butterscotch. You know, I like fruit, tropical. Oh, okay, come on, come on. Okay, I can't believe I have to defend this to the the dude who's making amazing wine in California. There's time and there's time and place. No, and it's not not for that. And it's not trying to be anything else. But the good ones have balance. I am a huge sucker for the the Ridge Chardonnay. I pick that up every chance I get. And Ridge is a great maker. They hold their acid. But I will be horribly sad if i ever open up a bottle of ridge chardonnay and it doesn't taste like butterscotch now we didn't we didn't try any uh of your chardonnay i don't think you had any chardonnay at the tables no so, I, I, but i think uh, i i think i did um we do send chardonnay to, to ontario uh they have our west sonoma coast in our state in our in this case we only make one estate okay um because we have a lot less acreage of chardonnay um we only have seven acres so we make an estate and we make a West Sonoma Coast. Made the same way. You make the estate first, blind of production. What doesn't go in there goes to the West Sonoma Coast. Andre, did you um, miss a Chardonnay? 
Did you miss a shark? Yeah, you may have been out. We caught you at the end of the day. Uh, I don't know. You, I was out. Yeah. Hmm. Um, most people came around and, and, you know, people who are professionals who are really paying attention, they go and taste whites first, guys. Um, you know. <laughs> well, are, you saying, are you saying we're not professionals? Here, look, here's how I You're taste. Professional something. I carry, I carry uh, two glasses and I hit each table and I'm doing white and then I'm doing red and then I'm moving on. So, I'm see, I mean, I mean, okay, but, but no, I, I do have Chardonnay. I think I ran out, uh, by the end of the tasting and it is, uh, we're not, so look, you know, well, the reason we went out to the coast and planted Chardonnay was very similar in the case of Pinot Noir. We wanted to make them in a traditional Burgundian fashion, which means barrel fermented. We do batonnage. We stir the leaves a little bit. Uh, we have a little bit of new oak. We don't find, we don't filter it. It's uninoculated fermentations. That's the traditional Burgundian methodology. But in California in the 60s and 70s and 80s and onwards, people were like, hey, I want to make the best Chardonnay in the world because I'm an American and I got money and I want to make the best Chardonnay. And where where's the best Chardonnay? Corton Charlemagne. What do they do? 100% new oak, 100% ML, stir the lees. And so I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm getting my fruit from, you know, back then, like the middle of the Napa Valley. Yeah. And they got butterscotch. And there's, you know, I was kidding before, like, there's nothing wrong with those Chardonnays. If you like that, great. Drink what you like. Don't drink what I like. Um, but uh, that's not what I like. So I wanted to go to a place where I can make it a traditional Burgundian methodology and still have energy, nerve, minerality, no tropical fruit. Uh, yes, barrel fermented. Yes, uh, 100% ML, but fresh and bright, just like some of those Chardonnays that come from other parts of the world that are cool <laughs> climate and can do that. Yeah, more, I love, sounds I love how, I sounds do, more Chablis-esque. Uh, I do love how you walk. I do love how you you walk that back. It was a very diplomatic way of uh, of re- responding to that, so you don't piss off any of your neighbors. I don't know if you could see because Michael moved off camera, but he was rolling his eyes the entire time. Michael is still one of those people where he proudly carries his ABC card. I'm trying to change it bit by bit uh, because yeah. Listen, I want. I'm okay with butterscotch. I'm not okay with flabby. Like the the toasted barrel that you get for. This is what I was saying before we hit record. One of the big problems that we're facing in the market at large for Cal, and this is one where I need to lump all of California together. Is it's hard to get the conduit because, like you said, your wines aren't inexpensive, but they're not super expensive. It's it's more affordable to get a bottle of pay than it is to buy most Corto Charlemagne or certainly any of the the oh, yeah. Maurice, the big guys or. Um, yeah, and um, you have no entry-level conduit to get to that because your flag bearers are factory-made wines. It's Martha Stewart and 19 Crimes doing the low-acid butterscotch wine with you know with a, a lack of complexity. But, it, but it, obviously, there's a there's a market for it because there are people who still buy it. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't okay. But you don't need to have that be the only thing on the market. Like there is a real there is going to be a challenge for like what Michael and I do as journalists and what people like and what you do. Andy, when you enter a market, I think in 10 and 15 years, as more baby boomers expire, to convince younger people... Did you just smile? I I didn't (laughs) smile. But to convince younger people to pick up a bottle of premium California Chardonnay, whether it's from West Sonoma Coast, Sonoma, Santa Cruz, like from, or even from Napa Valley, now that people are starting to make better wine there. So I I guess the question I'm going to put to you is, do you, what, what do you, how do you feel about the entry level of the California market, and do you hope to see some changes? Yeah, it's really hard to make entry-level priced wines in California for a host of reasons. One is land is expensive. Two, labor. Three, 
you know, taxes and regulations in California are just incredible. More than here? Um, well, you guys get taxed pretty hard as well. Plus, your import tax is insane, but that's a whole other subject. Um, in any event, uh, it makes it very hard. So you have to get really high yields, and you have to try to not put very much money into the winemaking. So uh, what you tend to get on the low end is uh, from inexpensive places to grow, like the Central Valley or Central, even Central Coast of California, and you know they're they're getting crazy yields, uh, and then they're putting them in tank and throwing oak chips in there, and to, you know and that's what you get. Yeah. So I think where you, it's very hard to get the entry level wines with any kind of quality in that twenty to forty U.S. dollar retail in U.S. Um, I think you can find some very good wines. It is harder, um, but you got to know. Like I know some people who I think making very good Chardonnay in that price point, and um, it's it's just you know. Do, do you want to name drop anyone? Like just so we can keep an eye yeah, out. Yeah, so, so Sandy uh, from uh, Santa Barbara County. Uh, Sandy makes really good Chardonnay. Lioko, Lioko makes really good Chardonnay. Uh, Tyler. Uh, so there's a couple of these, mostly Southern California, Santa Barbara County. Um, well, no, we'll have to do the research. So Michael just here sh- shaking his head. I know these wines are likely not available in the market here, but if you're an agency, if you're an agent listening list, to this listening, podcast, look them up. Please look them up because, like I said, I think I there's bet a, they're in Ontario. I bet you all three of those are in Ontario. Well, I mean, that's it. There's, there's a must huge be, must be a very small, like a small oh, agency yeah. that that but, picked them up. But, but I mean, that's still like I, I think there's a huge a huge opportunity there. Like like I said, millennials, like we are the well, we, experienced generation, and I think the entry level for good wine. Twenty to forty dollars US. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect to spend fifty we, we to sixty bucks of, Canadian of, for of small agents who become agents just to bring wine in for themselves. Like I mean, them and their friends, right? So yeah, maybe Tyler's got an agent in Ontario, but you never know. His agent could be like Bob Smith, who you know, you know, sells sells you know uh, three or four cases in Ontario because it's what his buddies you know, and then he tells the Tyler that. You know, oh, that's all we can sell here. So, well, I think I think all three of those wineries that I mentioned, uh, they have the ability as far as they have enough wine to sell. I don't know, they have some, and uh, they're pretty savvy folk. <laughs> so, well, I, I bet that they would they catch on to that one. But I, you know, I hope I will let them know that Ontario uh, friends with at least two of those people. So, <laughs> they, uh, I'll let them know Ontario's looking for them. So, uh, Andy, uh, Syrah, how does it, how does it grow on the, on the coast there? So Syrah is really compelling. I love Syrah. I love cold climate, climate Syrah. I should qualify that. I don't like warm climate Syrah because I like the iron blood, white pepper, you know, lamb braising liquid. Uh, I love, but I still like acidity and I want, you know, brightness. I don't want a big alcoholic thing. Having said that, I do drink a lot of Cornas, which can, Easily go over fourteen, or into fourteen. Still, um, still, Northern Rhone still holds the acid, right? But like, it, it does exactly. It's still balanced. That's why yeah, I yeah. don't. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, above fourteen, forget it. I mean, none of my wines are above fourteen or into fourteen. But uh, it doesn't mean that there's not great wines. I mean, shoot, most Barolo is. No. Um, so it doesn't mean you can't still have balance about it. Uh, but yeah, I love cold climate Syrah. Having said that, we only make about a thousand cases total across three wines. Oh well. Um, and it's super hard to grow. 
very disease prone. Uh, that fog and rain is, you know, not Either. your friend at the end of October into November. Harder than Pinot? Uh, oh, it okay. shouldn't be harder than Pinot, but we've had disease partly that came in from the wood that we got, which oh. is not a variety thing. That's a nursery thing. Yeah. But then also we've had some stuff that's been showing up recently. We, you know, we've had Utypa and it just has been a, a bit of a bear. Um, but we've ripped out three acres that we're now replanting to Syrah again, but we're just changing our, 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 our material. So as uh, I do have, I do have one complaint about your wines, and I'm please. Not. So here it is, as as somebody who uh, inventories wine cellars, um, your labels are very similar, especially for your Pinot, because you know scallop shelf and Pomeranium and West Coast, it's very faint on the label. So when I pull out the label and I'm inventorying, I go, oh, it's just a Pay Pinot, and I write Pay Pinot, and then I start noticing that the guy's got like. 24 36 of what i think of the same pinot and then i start looking like more in depth on the label i go oh my god he's got so Andre, shell. now he's i got- understand why you have michael here he is here to represent the gray hair yes people who have poor eyesight that's and can't read the word on it okay andy says- andy you, you know what you're saying i know you're, what you're saying is a joke but it's not a joke it's actually true um often when we're doing stuff like this and he needs to read something it's just like okay michael i have to read it michael does need to wear reading glasses and that is a problem so can you make your fonts um i just few, make like a make a blue label here. make a, a so red michael, label so, so that i can see a difference so i see a difference in the label at least First five vintages, my font on my wine was so small. It was ridiculous. I had consumers yes. calling me up in you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s, and they're like, seriously, come on. So I increased the font. Um, but uh, in the case of Chardonnay, which I know you're not talking about Chardonnay, but my Chardonnay just says estate, and the other one says West Sonoma Coast. That gets confused all the time. So starting in the 22 vintage, I've now called my estate a name, Maritima. Um, but having said that, they do all share the same family as far as it all looks the same. However, my second label, SEP, um, each of the varieties, Pinot, Syrah, Rosé, and Sauvignon Blanc, are a completely different color so that Michael can tell the difference. Abs- that, see, that, see, that's what we should be doing. See, and then my very ex- most expensive wine, which is a three-barrel selection that we only make in vintages when Vanessa thinks they're exceptional, which is been about half the time of our history. That is a blue label with a bird on it called Alanis. Completely different. <laughs> oh, I've seen that one. I've actually seen that one. I had a collector who actually had some of that. So that cool. must, that must be something very special. Well, and so, but you know, the the vast majority of what I make is pay, and it does kind of look the same, except for the name. You have to just pay attention. Yeah. See, I wasn't paying pay, attention. Pay attention to pay. Pay attention to pay. Not pee. I do want to see the SEP, though. we got to look into is, okay. does it. Come, does it come into Ontario? And, and, and sorry, the, the last question I have, is it SEP after the mushroom? Yeah, so we're, uh, we are in uh, Porcini land. Oh, my God. Uh, so i got to come visit you. I didn't we know. forage for Porcini, which is SEPs. Um, and so we do a lot of that in the fall. And uh, when I was coming up with names, I was like, oh, we'll call it SEPs. And Vanessa, having spent time in France, said drop the ES, and it means vine stock in French. And so oh, that's amazing. that makes more sense. So there's a little etching on the label that a friend of mine made of a vine. 
And that's what it is. Does it does it come into Ontario or is it doesn't? Uh, we think probably the Pinot will someday. Maybe rosé. Uh, I don't know your appetite for for uh, non sanier Van Gris style of Pinot rosé, but uh, oh, it's there. That, that it's, I, as long as it's good, that's what that's what I, I do. I do a rosé <laughs> report every year, so uh, super bright, super crisp, high aspid. High acid, very fresh. Oh, you're, speaking my, you're speaking my language now. Yeah, that's amazing. You know what, Andy? Um, I think this is as good a place as any to um, to, to wrap up. It, it, we could talk to you all night. I really um, appreciate you helping us get our hands on one of your bottles, talk a bit about your winery, and um, you know, in a great portfolio, you were a standout and uh, just a really great guy to talk to. So I'm really happy we got a chance to meet you. And, uh, you know, hopefully next time we do this, maybe we'll be down in, in California touring the West Sonoma coast and hoping there's no big earthquakes. Or, or, yeah, and, and drinking Chardonnay and making Michael a believer. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to do it. I'd like to do a Sass Jordan on that one. <laughs> he won't know who well, Sass Jordan so is. Thanks so much, and thank you for uh, your time and for helping spread the word in Ontario and, and, uh, and you know, helping uh, – Helping us get the wine to the people uh, through Rogers, uh, who is, is a great partner, and we're very pleased to be with them. So thank you for uh, for spending the time and the care and uh, for being wine fanatics. Man, um, it was so nice. Like, like I, I really did have a moment where my brain was struck by lightning when he mentioned West Sonoma Coast and knowing that I'd tasted some other wines from that region and just that's two wines from West Sonoma Coast that have uh, knocked the wind out of my sails. Like, you you got a... When you do questions, I know one at a time. I know one at a time, maybe two. Yeah, the eight question. I'm sorry. Question is not a good question. I know. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be Strombo, but I'm just. I, I'm not. I'm not as charismatic as Strombo. I can't pull it off. I think what we got to get you is like a pad of some sort, so you can write down your questions and maybe one at a time you can answer them. You, you know what the pro- you know what the problem is though, and I think this is something I just want to like like put out there is. Um, you know, when we met Andy at the Rogers and, and Company Tasting, like Rogers isn't paying for this. I hate that we have to say that, but I do think we need to need no, to say no, that. We have but, to be like, honest, but... but like we meet someone where like you're legitimately accepted. Like when you taste something and it's just like this is very different than what I was expecting, and the quality of the product is really good. That when Andy's like people like Andy, I find inspiring. So when he says something, the questions start to build up in my head where it's just like, I want to ask this guy a hundred questions because there's just so much I can learn from him and I, I, I appreciate him and I actually appreciate you putting up with that just because like I know we're recording this for other people but I got a lot out of that no I think there's a lot to get out of this and and as I said as a as somebody who inventory inventories wine cellars I see a lot of his wine uh and I'd never tasted it before and or at least it's never registered until Seeing it there at the Rogers tasting, tasting the lineup of Pinot. I don't remember the Chardonnay. I don't remember the we Syrah. We didn't taste the Chardonnay. We he didn't have the Chardonnay or the Syrah there. We, we got there late and we tasted the Pinot. But I can tell you, I think you and I are both on the same page where the next Rogers tasting, we're going to make sure we visit Andy first so we can taste everything. So, so I, like, I, I was really excited to taste the, the, the scallop shelf. I was really excited to taste the 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 pomerium the the west coast uh like all of that stuff because i'd seen them in in wine cellars before and it always makes you wonder when you see uh, a collector um and you look at you know they have first growth bordeaux and they have you know really high-end italian and suddenly you know you, and you see that they have dominus and opus one and suddenly this this pay appears and you're like 
who the hell is this? Why do they belong with these wines? And you can, and once you taste them, you go, all right, I kind of get why this sits in with all of these other wines. Not that they're first growth Bordeaux, but I mean, they do no. sit in there as a collectible, as something that's that's obviously drinkable. And this person is obviously drinking wine and not just collecting wine. Yeah, I mean, I find that, fa- you know, I think that's something that, that um, at some point in the future, like I know we keep talking about, like it's, it's, it's 2024, it's early 2024, and we always set these lofty goals of what we're going to do during the year, and I don't think we ever do it. But I would love to, talk to, you. I would love to talk to you at some point about like the demographic of the people whose sellers you inventory, like without throwing people under the bus. Because like, let's face it, the reality of wine is that it is a commodity, it is something that can increase in value. And at the same time, like as a wine lover, it hurts my heart a little bit to know that there's people spending literally thousands of dollars on bottles of wine that might never get drunk, that might just get sold and then resold and then over resold and again, again yeah. as they increase in value. So, I mean, that's a nice thing I love about like people like Andy and people like Pay. Um, and also a lot of the ones from Burgundy, because you and I, we had recently had a conversation on a train platform, is that like Great Burgundy and certainly like Premier Cru, like not Grand Cru, but Premier Cru Burgundy is not an investment the way that Premier Cru Bordeaux is. So even though these wines cost a couple hundred bucks a bottle, at least we know people are drinking them. It, it does kind of bother me that there's people and that the industry has gotten to the point where there's so much money being thrown around that some of these wines will never be consumed. So even though Andy's wines cost a hundred bucks, 150 bucks, I, I, I think the most expensive was like 150 at the Rogers. I think so, yeah. there wasn't anything north of that. Like that's expensive, but that's not that's not out of reach. That's not something for that somebody can, for somebody who's drinking, right? Like if you're it, a like drinker if, and you've got that kind of money and you're happy to but, open but that mean, bottle. Like you, and, you and I, if we if we said, you know what, like Michael, like you and I, like we've hit a milestone on the podcast. Let's treat ourselves to a really nice bottle of wine. Let's go half seas on a bottle of pay. I would have no problem splitting like seventy five bucks a piece. I know you don't like to spend that much money on wine, but like I mean, it's not unaffordable. I'd like for to us make to sure I'm getting at least half the bottle. That's it. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good. Uh, I think this is our longest post sample we've done in a while. Um, and if this is an indication, so we we talked to uh, to Xavier last week or last podcast. We've talked to Andy uh, this podcast. I think we're in for a really good twenty twenty four. I'm looking forward to what we're uh, we're going to put on the table this time. So you know, thank you to all our supporters. Thank you to our producers. Remember patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, by all means, feel free to reach out to Michael and I. I am. Andre Wine Review, Captain Chardonnay, but still Andre Wine Review on all social media. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I'm the grape guy on most social media, and I think you and I now have a date with a bottle of Ridge. Oh my God, that's that night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.